0: Uh, let's ask God to help us understand his word. our True and living God, we do thank you that there is a word. Our Father, we thank you that you are active in making yourself known to us. And we pray now in your mercy that we would hear you speak to us, that your spirit would take this word And allow it to take deep root in our hearts so that we bear the fruit of faith in Jesus and godly living. And help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Keep your life free from love of money. What an odd thing to say. I mean, what's not to love about money? I mean, every day in so many ways you and I are told that money will solve our problems, fulfill our dreams. I mean, this lottery guide assures me that if I had enough money to get this lovely house in Camberwell, I could live the dream. Oh, it also goes on and invites me to have those great holidays, the experiences that make life so rich. I mean, if I had money, I wouldn't have to rent and move and rent and move. Or I could get rid of my mortgage and not have to work work so hard, have more time for the kids and the grandkids. You know, with money, I could get the kids the schooling I really wanted or not sit on the waiting list for the operation. With money, I'd be able to access the law, have my interests defended. Oh, with money, I could... This is especially for Sam. I could commercialise my inventions and I wouldn't have to spend so much time chasing grants. Oh, with money, we could build those churches, have more full-time evangelists, transform Melbourne. What's not to love about money? Money works. And think of those first hearers of the book of Hebrews. They were so much worse off than us. They had had property confiscated suffered legal oppression, was socially excluded, and without property or work, they were very vulnerable because there was no food security in the first century Roman Empire, no healthcare, no social service. The threat of poverty was real. But with money, they could buy influence in the state, get a good lawyer, get people out of prison. Money would give them food security and social status. And if local persecution became hot, money would give them the ability to move to another city. In threatening times, money offers security and safety. So what's not to love about money? But here, God says to his people, keep your life free from love of money. God is calling believers in Jesus not to give their love, their devotion and loyalty to money, not to put their hope in the wrong place because there are some things that money can never do. It seems so obvious to say it, but I think some people actually doubt it, but money can't keep you alive. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. I mean, Kerry Packer, sure, he was able to buy a kidney transplant, but what did it give him? a few extra years and then, like the rest of us, he died. Money can't buy lasting life and money can't buy love. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So in your lonely retirement, money may be able to buy your services but not love. And money can't spare you from judgment. It can't buy you peace with the holy and just God who rules all things. Not only can money not deliver what we really need, life, love, peace with God eternally, now love of money actually gets in the way of obtaining these real and lasting treasures. Jesus told a story in the Gospels about a rich man who trusted in his wealth. He said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he went on to tell them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he said to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, Soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This man's labour and trust were given to and focused on his wealth and he neglected dependence on and obedience to the living God, to whom he and we must give account. And God reckoned him a fool. So harsh, isn't it? I mean, the bloke's just died. Surely God could be a bit more sympathetic than that, you know? But he said, fool. But God says that so that you won't be a fool, trusting wealth and not him. Oh, in the Gospel we also read an encounter Jesus had with a rich, a morally upright man, a man who was seeking eternal life. And Jesus called him to go and sell all he had and give to the poor and follow him for eternal life. Eternal life! But he couldn't. He went away sorrowful because he was extremely rich. And Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And that let me say, involves the total rearrangement of the camel, usually through a mincer, than for a richer to enter the kingdom of God. That is total rearrangement of the life of the rich. Love of money, choosing to get and keep money over obedience to God, frustrates our eternal good. Love of money turns us into idolaters, people who serve money rather than God because we think money is what will deliver for us the life we long for, that life of security and peace. It'll turn us into idolaters who fail to honour the living God who can alone give life. So, despite our culture's belief that money is all you need, that money will solve your problem, love of money is actually eternally dangerous, eternally impoverishing. And we know the truth, don't we, from experience of what Paul writes in Timothy about love of money. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We know that, don't we, because we see love of money hurting people all around us whether it's the person who's caught embezzling from their work with all that shame, or a person who sells drugs to get money, or or the person who borrows to make that killing on the stock market and then loses it all, along with the house they used as collateral, or whether it's the executive who neglects spouse and children for that higher-paying job, or the person who alienates his or her family by being so controlling with their money, or the believer who will compromise their faith and do work that God condemns, or make them makes themselves so busy chasing a dollar that they're never meeting with God's people, never serving in love. We know, we see the ruin and destruction love of money brings. And if we're believers, love of money will turn us into hypocrites, having a pretense of religion as a means of enriching ourselves. Just like the Pharisees, love of money is forbidden to us because it's dangerous and destructive for us. Yet we do have needs in this life, needs that can be met with money. And it's good, isn't it, to be able to see the specialist when you need or to be in your own home? So in an uncertain world where we have to use money, what can stop us from going down the dangerous path of love of money, trusting in our wealth. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. That is so out of touch with reality. I mean, ours is a society in which contentment, not wanting more or better, being at peace with what and how much you have, is actually seen as economically destructive and almost morally shameful. I mean, we are taught to be discontent, to want the new season's clothes, the new car, the better house. We're even taught to, want, taught to want the better appearance, you know, to get rid of that flab, to have that nip and tuck. And we see shows and read magazines that show us the lives of others so that we will want what they have, whether it's their home or their renovation or their holiday or their hairstyle. And let's face it, what would happen to the economy if contentment broke out, if people stopped buying those goods and services, decreased their consumer spending?
1: And if in our society
0: you're not driven by ambition to improve yourself, well, you're lazy, not realising your full potential. Or for those who are more left-leaning, by encouraging contentment, you're cooperating with the oppression of the workers in accepting the status quo and the present distribution of wealth. Contentment is not really encouraged amongst us. And isn't this call to be content a bit insensitive to those first readers? I mean, they just lost their property. Can you imagine the grief of that and the feeling of injustice? But God's not urging them to seek redress to get justice, but to be content with what they now have, what is presently at their disposal. Contentment's not fashionable, and yet contentment, being at peace with what you have, is actually the antidote to two troubling features of 21st century life, Australian life, envy and anxiety. You know envy, wanting what others have, whether it's their looks or achievement or wealth, resenting them for having what you don't have. Well, envy's corrosive of happiness and good relationship, isn't it? The envious can't be happy in someone else's happiness, Envy makes your life so miserable, isolates you, poisons your love of others, makes you vulnerable to all kinds of schemes to give you what they have. But being content, well, that sets you free from envy. It allows you to rejoice in their good, makes you able to be a genuine friend, frees you to enjoy who you are and what you have. And contentment's also the antidote to anxiety about material things. What you eat and where and where you live. I mean, despite having so much in our society, we are an anxious people, aren't we? Not enough to have a roof over our head. Will we ever be able to buy that house? If not, what will happen to us? Oh, not enough just to live well now. Will we have enough for retirement? Oh, can we afford that rise in electricity prices? Now, they are all real concerns. But identifying an issue or a need and being anxious are two different things. Anxiety, fretting, constantly returning to the issue, obsessing over it, lying awake at night thinking about it, that's just miserable and unproductive. Contentment short-circuits that thinking. (coughs) It saves you from being trapped in self-preoccupation. It clears your head to look for solutions. Contentment. Is actually what allows you to be cheerfully generous to others as Scripture commands. It's Paul, who was not a wealthy person, but who had learned, he says, the secret of being content in all circumstances, who could say to the Ephesian elders, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparels. Verse 33... In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said "It is more blessed to give than to receive. It's the content who can know that blessing. But if we can't see a way to solve these problems, housing, retirement, that new car when we need it, clearing our debts, why wouldn't we be anxious? I mean, residential insecurity is pretty bleak, and impoverished retirements not attractive. Why wouldn't the first hear- hearers be anxious in the face of their insecurity and loss? How can the author tell them and us to be content? Well, he can tell us to be content because, trusting Jesus, we can know God is committed to us, that He will never leave us or forsake us. You see, contentment is found in a relationship, not in stuff or in wealth. He has said. He has said to believers in Jesus, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look at that. This is a direct address to believers, to you if you're a believer, from God. The quote's actually from Deuteronomy 31. And in Deuteronomy 31, it's, He has said, He will never leave. No, but here it's brought into the first person. Here God is speaking to you, if you're a believer, personally committing himself. This is not just a record of something God has said in the past. This is what he has said and continues to say to his people I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the you is singular, it's not you plural. No, God is making a personal promise to each one of his people, each one of us who trust Jesus. This is God's personal commitment, a commitment to his presence with his people, with you, that guarantees to them, to you, the fulfilment of his promise. And we see that by looking at the context of the original speaking of this commitment. You see, a commitment like this was made to Jacob at Bethel before he went on that long journey to go to his uncle's place in Haran and come back to the promised land. See there? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Oh, this was the commitment God made his people and Joshua on the plains of Moab before they entered the promised land. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Oh, it's a commitment that God himself repeated to Joshua before the people crossed the Jordan. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. In every case, this is a commitment God makes his people when they're on a pilgrimage, about to start a journey, a journey to the fulfilment of what God has promised them, a journey that God knows will require persevering faith, trusting obedience, that will involve hardship and effort. And here, at the start, God is guaranteeing that he will see that journey through with them. They won't start in obedience and find halfway that God has given up on them abandoned them, left them to their own resources. No, they can face the toughest challenges, knowing that God has said he will be there alongside them. God's commitment of his abiding presence is actually assuring them that he will bring them to the goal of their journey, bring them to the fulfilment of what he's promised, their inheritance. Now, in the book of Hebrews, this wonderful personal commitment of the living God is made to each and every believer in Jesus, to you. God is saying he will bring us to what he has promised, that unshakable kingdom. We won't be abandoned halfway. He will always be providing by his presence, his presence with us, all we need to keep going, to, to obtain what he has promised. Now just think about the wonder of this commitment. Let, let's think firstly of the God who is making this commitment to his people. Who's this God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you? Well, he is the living creator God, almighty, all-knowing. He is the God for whom nothing is impossible. Oh, he is sovereign. He rules over all things, including the distribution of material wealth. Listen to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. And his rule and provision for his people is not overwhelmed by numbers. He's not less with you because he's got so many other people to care for. No, listen to our Lord, I'm not two sparrows sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He knows you. And he's actually never surprised. He knows, says our Lord, what you need before you ask him. And he is the God, and and seemed to be the God in his dealings in the history with his people, Israel. He is the God of steadfast, unfailing love. His steadfast love endures forever. There is never a time when he does not love his people. Now, this is the God who says in his word here that he has committed himself to us believers in Jesus. And here we see, don't we, the graciousness of this freely given commitment of God. (laughs) We believers in Jesus, we've done nothing to deserve God's kindness, have we? We're actually people who truly confess our sin week by week. We're people who know that while we long to love God perfectly for all his kindness to us, we don't. This wonderful commitment of God to sinful people is actually the fruit of and the testimony to the effectiveness of what God has done for us in sending his son into the world, the effectiveness of God's salvation of us in Christ. And because it's the fruit of what God has done, it means we can always rely on this commitment. It is always sure. He will never leave us or forsake us because believers in Jesus are now included in that new covenant that Jesus has brought into being by his sacrifice of himself, the new covenant where God has said, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. There is no sin that will come to drive God away from us where we trust Jesus. Because of what God has done for us in the death of Jesus, making us holy through that death, God says to every believer, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now isn't that something worth memorising? Something to store in your heart. We can practise contentment in all the circumstances of life, even when we can't see the solution to our needs. We can be freed from envy and anxiety when we are convinced about being saved by Jesus, God's Son. When we're convinced that in believing Jesus' gospel we are forgiven by the Holy God, brought into an eternal relationship with God where he is our Father. An eternal relationship where the Almighty Holy God has graciously committed himself to be with us, to fulfil his promise to us, to be with us to the end forever. Whatever our circumstances, our God is on the job. He's there, he knows, he cares for us and he is determined to get us to his unshakable kingdom. The first year had a lot to be anxious about, didn't they? I mean, they become poor because of their faith in Jesus and poverty threatened them with hunger and homelessness and they face the possibility of more and worse persecution. And there are things that make us anxious, that are not in our control and sometimes we can see no way forward through them. But the eternal God, if you're a believer in Jesus, is committed to... To you, he has said that. And if we know him, know him in knowing Jesus, know his love, his might, his wisdom, his graciousness, the goodness of his purpose for us, we can be content. And we'll know that this is a commitment to us that deserves to be responded to with a fearless confidence, whatever our circumstances. As a result of God's commitment, each of us can boldly say what we could never dare to say on our own initiative. The Lord, the Lord, the living, holy, just God, is my helper. I will not fear. The living and true God, God says is the one we can rely on to be with us and come to our aid. And so we will never be alone, never without help. The Lord is my helper, not my servant to do my bidding, but the one who helps me, his servant, do his will. And through doing his will, brings me to his goal for me the one who stands by to strengthen us in being faithful in trial as the Apostle Paul testified the Lord stood by me and strengthened me and because the Lord is my helper because he has said I will never leave you or forsake you we can say I will not be afraid I'll be strong and courageous for what can man do to me actually what can people do to me quite a lot actually they can break my heart through unfaithfulness, plunge me into economic ruin by dishonesty, injure me through carelessness on the road, threaten my safety and the safety of my family through violence, destroy my reputation by slander online. They can do a lot. What can people do to me? That's actually a question that takes some thinking about, doesn't it? And let's start our thinking with Jesus. You see, Hebrews 13 verse 6 is actually a quote from the Greek version of Psalm 118. This psalm, Psalm 118, is a psalm about God's chosen king, the deliverer of his people and his coming in triumph from the battle against God's enemies. There, verse in all the nations, to a joyous welcome by God's people in Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this psalm about this conquering king is actually a psalm that Jesus taught us in Matthew 21 is fulfilled in his own ministry. He, he says, is the conquering king who saves his people. He's the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. And so Jesus is actually the one who could truly say. As God's king, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? And that makes you think, doesn't it? Because what did people do to Jesus? Lots. They abandoned him, falsely accused him, mocked him, spat on him, scourged him, crucified him. On the one hand, people did everything they could to humiliate him and make him suffer. Yet, could they do anything to prevent God from fulfilling his good purpose for his faithful son Jesus? Could they do anything to stop God from raising Jesus to eternal life and to his right hand? Could they do anything to Jesus to prevent his father from exalting him as Lord of all and the only saviour of the world? Could they? No, they could do nothing against God's purpose. In fact, everything they did only served God's purpose for Jesus. By their hostility, Jesus conquered the enemies of God's people, death, sin and the devil. By their hatred, Jesus triumphed. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and as the psalmist says, this is the Lord's doing, it is marvellous in our eyes. And now because of that triumph, what Jesus could say is what his people, you and I who trust him, can say. What can people do to me who has the Lord as his helper? Think about that, believer. Because yes, people can do a lot to you, but they can't do anything which will not serve your God's good purpose for you, to bring you to his eternal kingdom. Oh, they can do a lot, but nothing, which is beyond the power of your God, who has committed himself to be your helper. You have heard his word, I will never leave you or forsake you. They can't do anything, which is beyond the power of your God, who has committed himself to be your helper, to work to your good, to use to form the character of his son in you and bring you to the son's reward. And that includes the little and the big things, doesn't it? The decisions of governments and the spiteful asides of work colleagues. Nothing is outside our God's sovereign rule. You heard Jesus, not a sparrow falls to the ground, but by his will. He's in charge. Of the decisions of bureaucrats. Proverbs The king's heart is like a watercourse in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever his will. And he rules over the actions of the wicked to make them serve his good purpose. Just as he ruled over the betrayal of Judas the unjust actions of the Jewish council, the indifference of a pilot, the cruelty of the soldiers, just as he used the actions of the wicked to exalt his son. He rules over all things. And he, who's your help, can keep you in the daily things, your daily bread and daily bills. The Lord is my helper, so I will not fear Like Joshua, knowing God is with us, we should be strong and courageous, boldly and faithfully getting on with the task he's given us, being salt and light in this world by listening to him and doing his will, making disciples of all by bringing the gospel to them and teaching them Christ's word walking in step with his Spirit by daily dying to what is earthly and giving ourselves to the Spirit's us to love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control, and yes, by practising being content with what we have. In this covetous age where you are tempted to think that money answers all needs, don't be conned. If you put your trust in money, if you love money, you'll become like what you worship, dead. Be freed from love of money by your love of the God who gives you life. The God who has graciously committed himself to every believer in Jesus, to you. The God who gives you boldness in trusting Jesus to say, the Lord is my helper. So hearing his word this morning, ask yourself, trusting him, am I practising contentment? Am I practising contentment? Do I really believe that he is, as he has said, with me? And using all the circumstances of my life, including my living arrangements, my level of income, my job, perhaps insecurity, to bring me to his great goal for me. Is that what you believe? To really believe that, and you should, would change things, wouldn't it? Change how you see your circumstances. You would know them ordered by your God, for your good, your God who knows you. Ordered by your God for your good, even if you can't see how? And knowing your God, in trusting Jesus as the God of steadfast love, isn't that enough to be content? Oh, and really believing that He's with you—that would make you confident, wouldn't you? That you're not a helpless victim of circumstances, but someone who has the Almighty God to help you, who is with you, not far away. You don't have to get His attention. So think of what you fear. Think of whom you might fear. Because it's people who hurt us the most, isn't it? Think of whom you might fear. Do you think they are stronger than your God? Do you think they can stop God bringing you to share in his eternal kingdom? Do you think they can stop your God from treating you in all things as his beloved child, whose good he pursues and works in all things. Your God has said to you, it's there before you, you believer in Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that wonderful? So have the boldness of faith that believes every word God says, And say, The Lord is my helper. I won't fear. I'll be strong and courageous in doing His will. For what can man do to me? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, give us grace to believe what you say. Give us such confidence in what you have done for us on the cross of your son, Jesus, that there, trusting him. We are made holy. We are brought into a relationship with you where you forgive us our sins forever. Give us such confidence of what you have done for us in your son, Jesus, in your great love and mercy, that we would believe this word you speak, I will never leave you or forsake you. And believing that, we pray, help us to practise contentment in all things and to show the courage of those who know the Lord is their helper. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.